So is there any advice you can give to any other woman out there? Uh, let's say, and I know this probably will be a little hard to explain, but is there any advice if you were to get kidnapped? Or if you were to be under the captivation of one of these serial killers, anything that you could do to try to get away? Serial killers hopped the list of questions by Texas A&M architecture major Patricia Rocha and her friends. This is a continuation of our new press conference at the True Crime Reporter podcast. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs. This episode marks the second part of our press conference in which true crime fans ask me questions about cases. If you want to come on the podcast for my press conference, email me, fan at truecrimereporter.com. Tell me what you want to talk about and why. Here's today's True Crime Reporter press conference. So after talking to all these people, all these criminals, it always leads to the question of like, do you think they're born with it? Or do you think maybe society made them that way? This is the same question that we reporters who've covered this ask, prosecutors, homicide detectives. This will always come around to discussion on many of these. Is it nurture or nature? That's always the, the talk. In the case of Kenneth McDuff, where we intimately know about his life and talk to the marshals that worked the case and all, we do know his mother was this domineering woman, the community he lived in feared her. She, she didn't believe his, her son could do any wrong. She was known as the pistol-packing mama because he got put off the uh, school bus once for misbehavior, and she showed up the next day with a pistol threatening the school bus driver. The town lived in fear of her, and she was always bailing him out of trouble, always, even, even after in prison and everything, doting. She's the doting mom, whereas the other kids in the family are kind of abused emotionally and physically by the father. So you have that. You see all of those elements, and you wonder. And, and But then, you know, people are doing the sophisticated MRIs now, looking at brain structure, and they're, they're seeing some differences. And so we still really don't know yet. You know, we do know there are people that, Men and women who grow up in abusive families and families like Kenneth McDuff's who don't become serial killers, who mm-hmm. become responsible members of society. So I think that is part of the mystery of why we all kind of are fascinated by and drawn in by this stuff is that could I have been this person or is, do I know somebody like this? That sort of thing. What do you think the difference between like fascination and then obsession means to a fan? Hmm. Like, where do you draw the line when it comes? Because I think about all these high prolific serial killers and that they have people who start being like a little bit into the crimes and start like being curious about it, but then end up being completely obsessed that they send letters and they like marry me and like they hold them to like a different standard. So I wonder what the difference is. I've saw that throughout my career, still see it today. I, and I'll get letters from them like, don't you know he's innocent, poor, pitiful him? I've got one of those just recently, and I'm like, do you know you're involved with a psychopath? I, I don't know what the what's missing in those women's lives 
Because typically what I find it is women and uh, these jailhouse romances and stuff. I did an episode not long ago about this where the female prison guard, you know, helped this killer escape and they took off and she ends up getting killed out of the deal. It was high profile. And we had seen this. I mean, we knew of a case of a female FBI agent who became involved with a death row inmate. You know, he's not going to get out and lead a life with you. He's getting, he's going to get, in Texas, he's going to be executed eventually. And then the ones that write letters. And now I will say this, the psychopaths and others, they're really good at manipulating these women of flattering them. You know, they might find some physical feature of the woman that she's self-conscious about or, you know, feels that she's depreciated and they'll flat, they flatter, they'll put on the flattery and stuff. And, you know, the psychopaths are master manipulators. And by the way, they don't feel fear like you and I, they have no fear. They have this uncanny ability to sense your fear and sense your needs and stuff. So I see that going on. And, you know, we saw with Manson, women showing up in the court, you know, not just his father, others, the Zodiac Killer, same thing. These women fascinated, sending letters and, and stuff. It's, it's always amazed me. I can't wait. It's one of my, I want to get one of these women on sometime to see if they'll talk. I, I'm like, why? What, what's going on here? On the other side of the coin, I see men that begin, I call it the lonely heart scam, that they will start. They'll fall in love with a female inmate. And what I've seen in the female side of the prison, they're very manipulative in reaching out. And there's these things online where they get their friends to reach out and they send pictures and make all these promises. And what they're really about is getting money for what's called their commissary account. Mm -hmm. So every inmate has a commissary account. They're limited on how much money, but they can get things there that they don't get in, in the prison cafeteria, such as potato chips, candy bars, in Texas, bluebell ice cream, cans of Coke, stuff like this, hygiene supplies, shaving cream, other, you know, upper level stuff. And, and by the way, all of those things, because it's a prison system, they all have an exaggerated value. It used to be until smoking was banned, you could get killed in prison over a pack of cigarettes. Somebody wanting your pack of cigarettes. So you will see the women soaking, typically older men, single men, often widowers, and you know they flatter them. And they'll come to visitation. They'll... Put them on their visitation list, and they'll come down. And sometimes we'll even get married, right? Right. I've yeah. seen, I've seen both, both sides. Yeah. Again, it's that part of like that. Our curious, how we're curious about what is going on in the in the brain. Whenever I first started getting into true crime, I think it was through podcasts and stories. But then, uh, with all these shows being released, you kind of tend to forget that even if it's I mean, I guess older for us, like the earlier crimes in the 60s, that you tend to forget the people are still alive that were affected by that because mm -hmm. they were kids. Like you said, she was 13 years old. So you don't really think about the way that these criminals are being portrayed in the television or, or different 
um, areas because you're like, oh, it was so long ago. It doesn't even matter. Believe me, it does matter. You, yeah. I mean, these, I, I see it. I've seen it every case where I've known about the families. They never get over it. And so, for instance, in the McDuff case, he randomly murdered three teenagers, parked at their high school football field, talking, playing music. Uh, one of the boys, what would have been his aunt, told me that her mother was his brother and told me that uh, as a result of all that, my mother hovered over me, didn't want me to spend the night anywhere, didn't want me to go places, was just terrified that I might be abducted like her brother had been. And it had just felt had smothered her life, you know. And always, this thing was on, on her mind for years. It was always on her mind. You know, and it did. I, I, I had a sense that it impacted her health too. So, have you ever thought about like? Oh, I don't know if you've done this before. Keeping up with the victims, or maybe a story on the victims. Well, yes, in the in the television show, we yeah. really that was a key thing. We've got we want the public to understand what happens to victims, and sometimes it's for us outsiders. It's kind of it, it can get painful. Of to keep up with the victims, because you know. And I, I know that Parnell McNamara, he was a U.S. Marshal at the time of this, really involved. Today, he's the sheriff of McLennan County. I think Parnell's 74 years old. His family's been in law enforcement since the turn of the century. You know, Roosevelt made one of the family members a marshal. It's just an amazing history, but... I know on him, he really, really carries emotionally the burden from the victims. I mean, he left the execution of Kenneth McDuff. He witnessed the execution. He went because he, he kind of gave some support for the victims' families. They're not there. They're not there for vengeance. What I've seen in all these cases, the families want to know that this person can't hurt anyone else. There'll never be another chance they can hurt anyone that some, some way they won't get out of prison. But I, uh, Saw him there. We, there's even a picture of he and I and his brother who'd worked on the case together outside the after the execution. I didn't witness it. But he told how he started crying on the way home and said, you know, I'm just not the old, tough old guy, Marshall, that I think I am. But it gotten to him. It just had got just what you'd seen. He'd had another moment like that, too. And I know the others had uh, when they heard the confession of McDuff's accomplice in the Colleen Reed case, and suddenly they knew and understood the full horror of what he had done. And it is unique in that it has been very rare that you actually know blow by blow what they do to their victims, but he had an accomplice. That's very unusual, and he had them and others. And Parnell said that he, driving back to Waco that night, that suddenly my tears came rolling out of his mind. He was like, oh, my God, I'm not as tough as I think I am, but this is horrible, horrible. Now, what it did do, it drove them 
all of these detectives and investigators to not let go. And so for years, they kind of kept it going. And so they actually got McDuff to reveal where the, he had put the bodies of three victims, including Colleen Reed, just to help bring the family peace and, and to have a, a service, you know, a religious service. I find in the detectives and stuff, there's always cases that they still carry around with them. I think, and I do think it takes something of an emotional toll over the long run. And now it makes me think, have you ever talked to any serial killers? Well, whenever you have like interviews with them, have they ever had some sort of resentment or did you ever kind of feel that they were at least a little bit bad about it? Or has it always been, no, I did this? No, they're psychopaths. There is no remorse. They have no feelings of remorse. The whole time you're talking to them, even when they're talking to investigators, they're thinking about how they can manipulate you. And you can, you've been around it. You can sense it. You can see it. And uh, one of my friends, Gary Laverne, wrote a, a book about McDuff. Gary's a Incredible writer. He'd written a, the definitive book on the sniper in the tower about the incident at the University of Texas. He went in and interviewed McDuff. A lot of people th- were asking, Robert, when are you going to go in? I'm, I'm telling him, I'm not going to give this guy any more moments. It's not going to be his moment. If I did enough of him going in and out of the trial, but there's nothing going to come of it. And sure enough, Gary was in there for quite some time. You know, and McDuff wanted to talk about his fast cars and how what a tough guy he was in prison, but would never go anywhere around the killing or any of that sort of stuff. And always had a cock and bull story that they they thought they could convince you with, but none, none of the the truth. And so he was pretty pretty hard, hard core. And I know one investigator that spent 40 hours with him and got a little bit of here and there about where all he had traveled and stuff like that. And then I know another investigator uh, who spent t- some time with him and said, McDuff, he was asking me, oh, look, Kenneth, where are all these other bodies? You know, we know there's probably dozens, everybody believed there's dozens of other women because he would also target sex workers on the street who, and they're typically, they've got drug addictions. They've, they become distant, isolated from their families. And they're really kind of, unfortunately, disposable human beings that nobody, you know, there's even been a problem with the police not paying attention to their disappearances. So you will find with serial killers, these are always in their, line of victims. There were lots of cases of missing women and they'd been in McDuff's orbit, but you know, McDuff just would be very cagey about it. And then he said, he made this motion around his head. He said, I've got them in uh, rooms here. They're all in rooms up here. And, uh, I've closed the doors on all those rooms. And the investigator looked back at him and said, now, come on, Kenneth, you're a smart guy. You're really smart. He's kind of trying to appeal to him. 
Surely you know how to open those doors. And Macduff gave him a big grin, big grin and said, yeah, I do, but I'm not going to open them. End of interview. You're stunned. <laughs> yeah. That's stuff that you went out of you. He knew. Yeah. And what was interesting, and this, this is a common thing too, that years, the, the, the bodies he revealed, three bodies, he's revealed year, six more or more years after he murdered them and disposed of them. And he buried his victims in remote rural areas in the woods. I mean, he was able to draw maps and take them to the exact spot. And so he relived it. And you find they'll relive it all the time, relive that moment. One, they couldn't find it on the map, and they did the extraordinary measure. They took him out of prison on death row and brought him out. And he sat in the back of a police vehicle, and an ATF agent stood at the window, and a prosecutor, Bill Johnston, was out in the field with a big pole, and he went, no, 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 no. You move a few steps this way, come this way. Now, they'd been out there searching for two days. They'd had a bulldozer and everything else, nothing. And Macduff took them to the exact spot. And I'm t I've been there. This is so remote out in a field by trees. I mean, in a basically a cow pasture on the banks of the Brazos River. And he took them right to the spot. And he's good. He's you know, a hundred feet or more away, but he knew. It makes you wonder how many times he visited the site after. They visit, they visit in their mind. It's in the mind. Yeah. They relive it. They relive every moment. Some take trophies to relive it and keep around things from the victim. And it brings it all back. Yeah. Again, <laughs> you know, that's, I think it's part of the, the fascination of, What's, what is going on there? Talking about the trophies, what are some of the weirdest things? I don't know if weird is the right word, but some of the most pieces that they've taken home that you've known about that have been stuck with you. Articles of clothing, jewelry, necklaces, ribbons from their hair, uh, undergarments, that sort of stuff. Yeah. We have a show coming up that we're going to start pre-production on. And that serial killer was taking porcelain objects and other stuff from places and giving it to his wife for their home. Yeah, like decorating the home with it. Yeah, she had no idea. How can, I guess because they're masterminds and they know um, how to manipulate people, they're really good manipulators. We've talked about that. But how can you keep this side of who you are a secret from everyone around you for these like very well-developed ones? Well, we've just done a podcast where they're using forensic genetic genealogy with a new DNA process to find killers from cold cases. They're finding killers 40 years later now 
that thought they'd gotten away with it. And what's so interesting on many of them, they've committed other murders and everything else, but they have a second life. They have families and children and all of this, and you would think they're just normal. In some cases, they've actually lived near close to the victim. So you're like, wow, the Golden State Killer fits that profile, ex-police officer and family. You know, and I, you know, I think one of these, one of those serial killers, I'm trying to think who that was, was like a Boy Scout leader. So they live in these second worlds too. I mean, imagine that. So is there any advice you can give to any of the women out there? Let's say, and I know this probably will be a little hard to explain, but is there any advice if you were to get kidnapped or if you were to be under like the captivation of one of these serial killers, anything that you could do to try to get away? They don't want attention. So I think it's important, these devices that sound, these shrill alarms and that sort of stuff. I, I think it's good if you have a very powerful pepper spray on your keychain, uh, but also just taking steps earlier to try to not make yourself uh, vulnerable. I do know on the sexual predators and all, they're they're opportunists. They're just they literally are looking. Uh, McDuff drove hundreds of miles every night just looking for victims. You know, I mean, he snatched a a woman like the one girl. She was in a car wash. Another one he snatched off a. Of, she's at a payphone. That's all pretty typical. But being aware of your surroundings when you're somewhere else. And the other thing, too, is trust your instincts. If something doesn't feel right, well, you're, you're, you're correct in feeling that way. There's something not right about it. If you're at a social event and someone, a, a male is talking to you or something, you, you just don't have a good feeling. Trust your feelings. Oftentimes, people will try to say, oh, no, no, it could be, you know, they, I, what I've seen always, trust your feelings. If you've got, there's something, I think sometimes instinctually in us, we, you know, need to pay attention to. But think out things before, beforehand. We're, 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 we're going to this club. Where, where, where should we park? Where's a place that's near the exit that's in, you know, well lit and stuff? And be, be with a group. Their safety in numbers. Do you think there's a difference between, this might come out really random, but do you think there's a difference between like living in a city or living in like more of a urban environment and how vulnerable you are to these things? Well, the, you know, the difference is the density. There's just more people, more opportunity. But hey, Big Duff was in a, he wasn't in, the Dallas's, New York's, LA's of this world. You know, he was in more sparsely populated places. And so it, it kind of goes back to they're opportunist and you need to, you know, don't walk or you don't need, I'm not saying walk around with looking over your shoulder all the time, but do just have some awareness. Think, you know, some of this is just common sense. I've always, you know, one of the things that shocked me about McDuff, he was cruising around the University of Texas. And I was surprised that he didn't strike there or in Waco at Baylor because I really, things I've seen 
Uh, women on college campuses are more vulnerable. And we do know, I mean, there's been crimes and, you know, they're walking across campus late at night from the library and it's dark and stuff, stuff like that, where they just need to be more aware and thinking about it. But the other thing that can put all of us, men and women, uh, is uh, out uh, jogging, that sort of thing with your headphones on. Yeah. And I've, I'm, I'm even, I'm seeing more cases now of that going on because you don't, you've gotten in the moment, you're not, you can't hear somebody coming up behind you. And I've been a case of that. I've just recently in New York, a woman jogging along the pier where the aircraft carrier are all are there. The very popular area guy came up behind her and he's also a poster boy for the failure of the justice system up there. I mean, he'd been let go on like 32 arrests. Um, they should have caught him earlier, but after defund the police, they're children, officers, officers, people, young people don't want to go into the department. So the uh, grid searches they usually would do, they didn't do and took longer to catch him. So yeah, again, be aware of your surroundings. Certainly have your windows and doors secure in your home or in your dorm room or whatever, you know, tell your girlfriends where you're going. And we keep mentioning that they're um, opportunists, right? But we've also known that they sometimes prefer a certain type of victim over the other. So of course, like if they prefer women, um, in the cases that you've covered, have there been any, um, like preference in victims that you could pinpoint like, Oh, he really liked, Curly-haired, uh, curly-haired yes. girls. Yeah. That's, something, that's something that typical that you see around. Since I know the McDuff case so much about it, his typical victim was a petite female, brown hair, brunette, ideally five feet uh, that he could control. He was a, a large man, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, a big, big man. But what really the big feature was his hands. Everybody in law enforcement were struck by how massive his hands were. They were huge. And he was strong, strong, working out for weights in the prison system. But he literally would grab a petite victim by the throat and lift them off the ground and then shove them into his abduction vehicle. But he was that strong to do this one handed in his, you know, when they finally captured him, the way the handcuffs went on hands, it was, they had to use leg irons on him or two. That's how big it is. And I had in the show and I, you know, I, I pulled together all the stuff in the case files. I've got his hand prints where he's booked in and stuff in there. You're like, oh, OK, huge. huge. Yeah. Now. Interesting on him, men didn't have any really uh, cause to be afraid of him. He was kind of a a chicken around men outside. Now, inside, he was a bully inside the prison system and all. It was known as, I mean, I interviewed his cellmate and stuff. He was known as a guy who would just go off like a stick of dynamite. But outside the prison, he, he'd back down from, if he'd gotten a confrontation with men, he'd back down. But he was all about power over women. But his only, he only liked petite, mm -hmm. That's five it. foot. That's it. They all fit that way. There were victims that were Caucasian, Hispanic, and African-American. 
So he didn't really have a preference on race. Not a race, but diminutive. And so I think that's how it varies from, I guess, serial killer to serial killer. Because I've heard some do have a preference. Yeah, they do. They do. And does that really... I don't know if we're getting too much into the Macduff case, but does that relate to anything in his past life? Or is it just because he could control them? I've wondered the same thing. I've talked to people wondering if there's something back. Uh, we know that he, I definitely know he raped a girl in high school, got away with it. Family was too afraid to come forward. And she fit that profile. And I know of other rapes when he was like eighth grade, that sort of thing, those victims and that never caught. And so you just wonder, okay, it was something there. You don't know. It's it. But again, I just think it's, it's complex, but they do. I have seen that they have preferential victims. And is it ever for the detectives that you've been talking about, or even with you, do you ever like, is it ever too much? Like as, at some point, are you going to just be like, I, I can't do this anymore? Is this too much? My investigation of the prison system and all this sort of stuff took place over a eight-year period where this was a lot of preoccupying stuff. Um, and then I turned to terrorism reporting. Uh, and I didn't, for a long time, didn't do anything around crime and I really just like, I wanted to get away from it. And even when people started uh, saying, you know, you really ought to do a true crime podcast of all your stories and the information you've got. And I had people, retired FBI agents uh, and marshals encouraging me saying, you know, you really ought to do this. I was reluctant at first. I thought, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go back to Now that I'm back to doing it, it's, it's, it's just interesting. It really is interesting. And I hope I can do it in a matter and try to do it in a, in a means that that um, make a difference. And they become educational. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's always one of our objectives. We hope that if we don't directly say something educational, although in many in our interview style ones we do, that you'll at least get some insights out of it. You know, the thing as a reporter, what I saw, particularly going into war zones, you know, you could go in to Rome and see the most incredible works of art from the Enlightenment and everything, and in St. Peter's, and at the same time, you can see in their history the most barbaric treatment, and you would think, well, we've come farther, but you know, go to, go to a war zone today and go to places where there's dictatorships and the things that are being done to people. Uh, like in China, would be people locked up, locked inside their apartments for months on end and being burned to death in fires, that sort of stuff. I always refer to it as the, the darkness or the ghost in the machine here. And, I, you know, that's, I think, a big part of the appeal. And true crime has been with us for quite a while. I'm very familiar with uh, what were called penny dreadfuls sold on the streets of Victorian England that covered cases. And, you know, in those days, they, they would have 30,000 people show up to witness a public hanging. So at least we don't do that. I wonder how many people would show up today. Good question. Maybe more than we'd like to know. Well, any more? I can't think of any, but if I do... Well, I th this has been good. I, I want to 
say to our listeners, I, I'd like to have more fans come in that to answer your questions. I know that many of you have expressed a desire to even have sessions, and we're going to try to do this where we can bring detectives and stuff back and you could talk to them. I think that's a great experience. Well, so Patricia, thank you. Good luck and stay safe. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to put questions to me in our True Crime Reporter press conference, email me at fan at truecrimereporter.com. Tell me what you want to talk about and why. Thanks for listening. True Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs. It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our true crime community. It's free. And there's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.